Welcome to the Grove Community Church Sermon Podcast. We're a faith community seeking to change lives, change our community, and change the world. And now to this week's message. We hope you enjoy it. Last week, I was running a marathon, a half marathon, on Sunday morning. That's why I wasn't here. And I want to thank Matt. He did a fantastic job. Thank you, Matt, for filling in. Um, really came through, and I appreciate you. Um, but I was running, I was running a half marathon, uh, which I didn't think I was going to do because I'm only uh, at the time I was only about eight and a half weeks post surgery. I didn't know if I would be able to to handle 13 miles, particularly since I lost two months of training. And when you lose two months of training, when you're do, training for a half marathon, that's significant. That's a lot of miles that you lose. And then in the middle of that, I started my workouts again. And, and uh, being kind of not very smart, I guess that would mean that I'm stupid, but being kind of stupid, um, <laughs> I was trying not to say that out loud, uh, <clears throat> I injured myself lifting weights and I hurt a rib and it was extremely sore and so I had to take another week off, lost another week of training because of that. And uh, it's, so it's just a complete mess. So I've, I'm going into this race thinking this is going to be horrible. So I had a plan. My plan was I was going to run a specific pace. I was going to run like a 9.50 pace. If I run a 9.50 pace, I'll be okay. So that's a, a full minute and 15 seconds slower than what I ran last year. So at the same place. So I'm like, okay, I can do this if I just stay on this pace. And then I started running. And it felt so good. I was shocked and amazed. It is funny what adrenaline can do for you. And I come out of the gates, and I'm like in my stride, and I'm looking around at the beauty of God's creation, and there's waves crashing on the beach over there, and there's a lagoon over here, and people are cheering, and you're like, yes. And I hit my stride, and I'm like, oh, this is awesome. And I look down at my watch, and I go, oh, wow, I'm smoking it. I'm running a nine-minute mile. Mile six comes, and I'm running like a 930 mile. And I'm like, man, I could do this all day. This is awesome. And I'm running it thinking, man, I've got this thing. I'm going to crush it. I'm going to totally beat what I thought I was going to beat by like almost a minute. This is going to be phenomenal. And I'm running almost a minute per mile. Man, this is, all, this is awesome. And then mile eight hit. And the wheels came off. <laughs> I had gotten so far ahead of myself. I had gotten so wrapped up into what I wanted, so pushed by my own desire to do better than I should have tried to do, so pushed by pride that I got way ahead of where I should have been. When I passed the pacer at 9.30, I was like, chump. And then about mile 10, he passed me and was like, jump. So it was a struggle. I had to walk for a few minutes at mile 8 and then walk for a few minutes. And by a few minutes, I mean literally three minutes at mile 11. So my pace slowed way down. And I started back up again. And I remember there were a couple of people, and I'm like, okay, I, 
I, I can do, if they can do this, I can do this. I've got this. It's only a couple of miles. And then the 70-year-old passed me. And she stole my soul. <laughs> Absolutely stole my soul. And if that wasn't bad enough, I had to will myself the final mile. Like 50 yards before the finish line, I hear the group behind me say, okay, are you ready? You got this, guys? You want to do this? And I hear all these voices, yeah, let's go for it. I'm like, what is happening? And you don't want to turn around. You're like, sir, there's like a herd of people coming up behind me. And whoosh, they rush by me to finish. And I'm like, jerks. <clears throat> And that was like the 10, 30-mile people passing me, and I crossed. Now, I did cross much better than I thought I was. I ended up finishing under a 10-minute mile, which I didn't think I was going to do come mile eight. But the point is, is I could have been a lot better had I not gotten ahead of myself. Had I just stuck with my race plan, had I just let the race happen and not try to push it, my agenda and my pride, I would have ended up much better. And how often do we do that? In life, our agenda, our pride, the pressure of 70-year-olds running by you and smoking you, you're just like, oh my gosh, I can't let this happen. And all of that fogs our decision-making, and we begin to make bad decisions based on the wrong thing over and over and over and over again, David had the opportunity to let everything swirling around him impact his plan. Over and over and over again, he, he had the opportunity to make a decision he shouldn't make. Over and over again, he was presented with clear pathway, a clear pathway to being king and he could have manipulated things, he could have pushed it, and he could have let his pride and his arrogance and his will take over, but he never did. And at long last, today we're going to look at this verse from 2 Samuel 5, these verses from 2 Samuel 5, where David finally, after years of waiting, becomes king. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel 5, and we're going to be looking at the first 10 verses. 2 Samuel 5, 1 through 10. You can follow along on the screen on a smart device or your phone or in your Bible. So remember that David now twice has had someone kill someone that was leading the northern tribes and come to him and say, hey, look, I killed the leader of the northern tribes. Now you can be king up there. And both times he said, no, no, you tried to get ahead of it, that's that's you doing this. This isn't God doing this. And both times he rejected the opportunity to step in to be a king when it was manufactured by humans. Both times he had the opportunity to say, okay, well, I didn't kill him, so here's this open opportunity. I'm going to step into it. And he didn't because in both times it was humans that made the decision. It was humans that made the choice. It was humans that did the actions that led to the opportunity. So he waited. And we come to 2 Samuel 5, verse 1. Then, and we don't know how long this then has been, then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are 
your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought us in, Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be a shepherd of my people, Israel, and you shall be, be prince over Israel. So, we think it's somewhere, or it could be as, as long as five years between the last person that was the king of the northern tribes and this scene. It could have been five months, it could have been five years. We don't know how long. But think about that. Think about waiting for five years to receive this thing that you've been promised. Think about waiting for five years for this opportunity that you know is ripe. It's right there. It's easy to reach out and pluck it and grab it and move forward. And he waited. He waited. He didn't want to manufacture it. He didn't want to push it. He didn't want to get his pride and get ahead of the, the pace. He was waiting for the rest of the people of Israel, for the northern tribes to come to him. Think about that patience. It's hard for me to wait for the next episode of the, of the show I'm watching on Netflix to come out once a week. Like, I can't, I'm like, wait, every day, I'm like, wait, when is that? I'm like, Laura's like, Todd, we know it's Sunday, it's coming out, or we know it's Monday, it's coming out. I'm like, yeah, but are you sure? And that's on Monday after we just watched it. I can't imagine waiting for months or years. We live in a culture where we want it now, and when we see the opportunity, we're going to push everything we have on the table and say, we're going all in for this. And it would have been so easy for David to do it, but he didn't. He waited for them to come to him. Not rhetorical. Why do you think he did that? You can answer. Why do you think? I don't know that there's any one single answer. I don't think there's a magic bullet answer here, but why would he wait? All right, it'd be more peaceful. There's no, there's no military action that has to take place. What else? Yeah, he trusted. And he didn't trust just anybody. He trusted God. God said, I'm going to make this happen. And he waited because he trusted. What else? Along the lines of keeping peace, if it was his idea, he might not have buy-in from the northern tribes, right? But if he waits on them, they've all bought in and they're coming to him. He doesn't have to manufacture it. All of these reasons and probably more, he waits, and they show up. All the tribes of Israel came to him at Hebron, and they gave three reasons for him becoming king. One, he was connected to them as family. You are flesh and, and blood, basically. You are bone and flesh. That's their version of flesh and blood. In the past, when, when Saul was king, you were his right-hand man, and you led the army. So we know that you can lead an army. So you're, you're our... You're connected to us as our family. Um, we have the same past. We're all Hebrew. Um, you have led the army before. And then the last thing they say, and God has promised that you will be the guy. So because of that, we're all in on you. So then all the elders, they send messengers to tell him this. So then all the elders of Israel, the elders being the people in charge of each tribe, the people who were over the decision making, all the elders of Israel came to him at Hebron 
And King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. So they came to him, and what was his response? What did he do? Again, not rhetorical, verse 3, after the first comma. And King David made a covenant. Now think about that as his first act. He didn't come in and say, I'm going to be your king, so get ready. You act like you're the, what is it? No, no, y'all probably don't remember that. Bacon is good for me. Do y'all remember that, kid? No. Okay, well, never mind. Go look it up. It is hilarious. It was on Wife Swap one time, and that kid was hilarious. You need to go check it out. And uh, he, tells the, he tells the new mom that, do you know, it's, someone's remembering this now, right? Yeah. Bacon is good for me. But anyway, he tells the mom, you think you're the, you're the swap mom. You think you're, you're the queen, and we're just the stupid little people. And that's kind of what he could have done. He could have treated them like the stupid little people. But he didn't. He came in and didn't say, this is what you owe me. He came in and didn't say, this is how it's going to be. He came in and said, I covenant with you. That means it's a give and take. That we both owe each other something. David didn't come in and say, I'm going to lord it over you, I'm your king. He came in and said, look, you've accepted me as king, so this is what I covenant to do. And if I break this covenant, you can kill me. Do you understand how significant that is? This is the first time a king has made a covenant. Saul didn't make a covenant. Saul just came in and was king. But David came in and said, no, I'm going to covenant with you. I'm going to make sure that you trust me, that what I choose to do is good for you, not just good for me. I am going to be a proper kind of leader for you. And then they anointed him. This looks much different than how it was done everywhere else in that day. David chose a different course. Verse 4, David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all of Israel and Judah 33 years. So this is a summation that's going to transition into him taking over Jerusalem. But I want to pause for a second here. Because if you do the math, what we know is that David's been waiting for over 10 years now to be king. Could be more than that, but at least 10 years. Probably more than that, but at least 10 years. Probably closer to 15. Let that sink in. God says, I'm going to do something for you. And 15 years later, it happens. And in between that, you are chased and kicked out of your home. Your wife is stolen from you. Some of your closest friends are murdered. A whole group of priests that you counted on were slaughtered, and you found them. You had to live in a cave for years at a time. We have it so easy in our culture, we don't understand the long view. And that's exactly what David has here. 
he realizes that if God promised here, I might have to go through all of this stuff, and it might be awful, and there are going to be times where I question, and he does, just read the Psalms. God, why aren't you listening to me? Why are my enemies winning? But over and over and over again, when he has a complaint, he goes to God. He doesn't just shun God and say, you know what, forget you. You promised something and you didn't come through. You've left me out here, you've hung me out to dry. I don't trust you anymore, which would have been easy for him to do over and over again. He had plenty of opportunity to do, but every time he might have asked, why God? But every time he comes back, but I'm trusting you. For 15 years. We can't own a car for 15 years. I mean, some of you can. But think about that. 15 years waiting for God to do what he said he was going to do. 15 years trusting. 15 years. And then the king and his men, verse 6, went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. So, a little quick history as an explanation to what this means. The Jebusites was a small band of people that lived on Mount Zion, that lived on part of the hill that Jerusalem is on. Jerusalem wasn't a city at this time. Well, it was, but it wasn't, it wasn't a city that was owned by either the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom of Israel. It said in between, it was a city-state, and it was the lone holdout from the previous people that lived in the land before the Israelites came. This one small band still lived in a fortified city on the side of the hill where the temple was later constructed. Just sitting there, overlooking the Kidron Valley. Just fortified city. But it was so fortified and so strong, no one had been able to defeat it. So David comes in, and his first act as king is to go take that city. Now, one reason why he wants to take that city is because there are holy implications about that mountain. The other reason is it sits in between the northern and the southern tribes. It's the perfect place to create your city from which you will rule because it doesn't belong to either. It's not northern, it's not southern, it's its own deal. So David says, we're going to take that and we're going to kick out the Jebusites because they should have been kicked out centuries ago. But the Jebusites, they were kind of cocky. They said, we could defend this city with people who can't see and who can't walk. We can defend this city with children if we needed to. Because of where we sit and because of the fortification. David can't come here. We're not scared of you, David. And we don't care anything about your God. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up in the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who were hated by David's soul. Therefore, it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. This sounds really strange, but it's smack talk. I mean, that's really what it is. He's smack talking back. So they said to David, 
It doesn't take, we could, we could take our weakest in our culture and defend the city. There's nothing you could do. And so David, in return, kind of smack talks them back and says, okay, well, we're going to attack the lame and the blind. In other words, we're going to attack and win. And there's nothing you can do about it. And we're going to go in the water shaft. Now, if you're going with us to Israel, we will actually probably go through this shaft that sits on the side of the hill. It's pretty cool. It fed, it fed the city. It was the water that fed the city. And so now they have walking tours through part of it, right? So you're going to see what this looks like and what it would have been like. So they sneak in through the city and they overtake it. And David's smack talking all the time. Verse 9, and David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward which we think was a defensive uh, uh, bulwark that was set up on part of the city. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And so we see that David receives the kingship, then he sets up his city from which all of Israel's history grows. And it happens because he's patient, and because he doesn't push it. Because he doesn't get ahead of the pace. He doesn't run out in front. He lets it come to him. So I think there's three things that we can learn from David in this scenario that is direct application for us. The first thing is wait on the Lord. God's way is always better than ours. If we just keep pace with him, we will end up doing better than if we try to push the pace and get out far in advance. David for 15 years patiently waited. I think that is, that's something that we have to learn in our culture and it's the hardest, it's hard for me. I'm like, no God, I want it now. No, I want this to happen now. Answer my prayer now. Do this now. This is what I want. But David didn't do any of that. He said, God, I trust you. I trust you. And I'm going to wait on you. Because God's timing is always better than ours. God's pace is always better than ours. The second thing I think we can learn is that David makes a covenant saying that this isn't about me. Instead, I want to serve. I want to be the right kind of king. And I think what we can take from that is that we're called not to be served, but to serve. We're called to not live our lives as if we are the center of the universe in which everything else revolves. Man, I live my life like I'm the main character and everybody else is an extra that just shows up off the street. And when we live like that, we lose perspective of what God's doing out here. We forget that every person is the center of their story and that every story God has a great plot written. It's not just our plot. It's not our story. It's not ours to write. God is writing it. So if that's the case, then instead of trying to make it all about me, then we need to try to make it about others to serve and not be served. That's what David did. 
Now, he doesn't always do that. And we're going to get to some really shady stuff that he does. And I like that about him because it means he's not perfect. And I like that about him because I'm more like that part of David than this part of David. And I need to learn from that part of David too. What not to do. But now, at this point in his life, David is saying, nope, it's not about me. It's about how I can serve. How I can be an instrument for good. And then the third thing I think that we can learn from David is that he clearly was seeking to set up boundaries through all of this, all of this scene, right? From when he becomes king to taking over Jerusalem. He is setting up boundaries around him to protect him for staying on course. When I deal with people on a weekly basis, the number one issue when it gets down to it is they've made bad boundaries or they've stepped over boundaries that they had. And so we see from David that he was clear about boundaries. He was not going to force the issue, so he created a boundary. I'm going to wait. I'm going to sit here in Hebron, and I'm going to wait. I'm not going to go up there. I'm not going to talk to the elders up there. I'm not going to try to push my agenda. I'm going to sit here. Do you know how hard that is to create that strict of a boundary and wait? He sets a boundary around Jerusalem. No, this is the city that I know we need to be in. This is the city. This is it. And then when he takes it over, he sets boundaries around it. Over and over again, through this part of David's life, we see clear boundaries set and kept. And so those three things, if we can get those right, I think we will find that life can be extremely fulfilling. If we wait on the Lord, if we seek to serve and not be served, and if we create great boundaries in our life, we're going to experience life the way God wants us to experience it. But when we get too far ahead, when we're pushed by pride and self-agenda, when we let the world dictate our boundaries instead of God, we get passed by 70-year-olds. We hope you found this week's message meaningful and impactful. And as always, don't just hear it, but put it into practice. Until next time. Have a good one.